British government when they were when India was part of the British Empire in Delhi they there were venomous cobras Oof. wild like wild cobras through the city so they said okay we're gonna give a bounty on the cobras mm-hmm. I'm in so- sounds like a good idea we're gonna give a bounty on the cobras so people started killing cobras and getting the bounty but then eventually there were less cobras so people started breeding them oh, uh, for yeah. the purposes of then turning them in yeah and so the government figured this out and then stopped paying so then at that point it had gotten to the point where it was worse than before yeah Ugh. they stopped paying so then people were thinking okay i'm not gonna breed these cobras anymore so they just kind of like let them out of the wild and more cobras were now existed in delhi than before they even started the program because they had been bred so much and then people just didn't uh, just let them out into the wild yeah so it actually made the problem worse and that's what called the cobra effect That was a sneak peek into a deep dive Slava went down while we were discussing the life of Mansa Musa, the man of this hour. King Musa is considered by many to be the wealthiest person to have ever lived. So let us journey into this golden age of the Mali kingdom and chronicle the life and feats of this famous ruler. Slava? Pass. Well, today we are talking about Mansa Musa, the book I know, I called him Kankan Musa. Mansa means king, but Mansa Musa, of course, sweet name, double M's, got the whole alliteration thing going on. The only the only thing is that at, at points I got confused whether it was Mansa Musa or Musa Mansa. <laughs> I think for a little bit I was saying Musa Mansa, which, yeah, they got that mixed up. But it's yeah. definitely Mansa Musa. Or Musa, for short. Yep. Yeah. Either way, the name sounds great. We know who you're talking about, so we'll we'll forgive you. And so, who is this guy? I heard about him because people say he is the wealthiest person to have ever lived. Which is quite the feat, especially with Jeff Bezos running around. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I um, I heard about him from you. You told me about him. And I had never heard the name before. So this was brand new, fresh research for me. Yeah. Yeah. And not too much material out on him. Yeah. Very, uh, very scarce information. A lot of almost rumors, mystical stories kind of things. A lot of secondhand knowledge. Exactly. Not, not a lot of uh, biographies or autobiographies as a lot of, uh, a lot of folks tend to have. Yeah. Yeah, no, kind of romantic. A lot, a lot of storytelling, and we're going to continue this storytelling. But we do know he was born in 1280. He was somewhat a part of the royal family. His, In one reference, I saw uncle. The other, I saw brother, was the king. And th- what happened was the current ruler of Mali, which is in Western Africa, he really wanted to explore out west go to the ocean Mm. and he sent out 400 ships out west to just see what's beyond the sea he gave them food and water you know servants and he said don't come back unless you run out of food and water or you hit land and then one ship returns some guys like there was a current one ship returns this current king Musa's family member 
is still so passionate about exploring. He goes out himself. You know, he brought 400 people, servants, slaves, yada, 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 and is never heard from again. Yeah, that's kind of brutal for that guy. Go Sends 400 ships. You would think if he sends such a large group <laughs> and they don't come back that maybe the problem was more the journey and not as much <laughs> who was doing it, but it went out. If you want something done right, you do it yourself. Yeah, you got to respect that fervor going out again, even though he probably knows he's not going to succeed. So you got to at least respect the fervor. The, the passion. Yeah. yeah. The, the drive. Determination. The determination. Yes, he really wanted to, uh, he wanted to find out what was on the other side of the sea. Yeah. And, uh, I'd like to think maybe he found out. I know, maybe, right? Maybe just never came back. Maybe he landed in uh, Brazil, modern day Brazil. Yep. And uh, just was thinking, wow, the weather is much better here than on the sub-Saharan <laughs> Africa. So, so we're just going to stick around and maybe not go back. Yeah, I like to think so too. But probably not. Probably not. <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, regardless, during this time, Musa becomes a temporary king, and. I imagine it's kind of an awkward period when it's when does it become temporary to full time king? Mm, yeah, how long? How long until they don't come back? Yeah. Until you until you decide. All right, maybe this is more yeah, than a yeah. more than a temporary situation. And, and we don't know, but you know, he becomes king and he really succeeds in terms of you know wealth and expanding the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So this is the the Mali Empire is mm-hmm. what he's the king of. Yep. And to do some visualization, Mali is uh, modern Mali mm-hmm. is is a country that is it's a portion of the Mali Empire. And what we're talking about is uh, kind of ju- just south of the so the Saharan Desert is the Sahara Desert is right on the northern almost northern third of Africa. And if you go on the western side of that. Mm-hmm. Of the wider part, it, the, the empire that we're talking about is probably like the the left third of that subsection just below the Saharan Desert. Yeah, it kind of juts out into the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and he would expand it. But one of the things he was known is he was a very understanding ruler. And this was shown when the gold miners, they had pagan practices, which was not acceptable in most people's eyes for this largely Islamic kingdom. Instead of sending troops and forcing conversion to Islam, he was progressive and said, you know what, you can practice whatever you want as long as you know I keep getting that gold and you send troops when I ask, which was kind of a progressive novel idea for the time. Yeah, I would say in history, converting religions is very popular. Yep. So to see to see a leader kind of allowing people to go their own go their own path in a way yeah. was a, was definitely a progressive thought at the time. Absolutely, and it turned out financially and in terms of expansion of the kingdom to work out for them. Despite I'm sure he had a lot of people at the time saying pagan is wrong, we need to convert them, but he, he chose not to do so. Another thing he was known for is a dominant horse cavalry. So, you know, your army, per se, on horses, they had special horses imported because of their agility and ability, and they would use swords and javelins. 
just pretty badass overall to have a horse army and kind of probably a lost art in today's modern warfare. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I would agree that horse that horse <laughs> cavalries are a lost art. <laughs> um, but at the time, having mm. a strong in kind of the pre-industrial times, having a strong cavalry was really, along with having a strong navy, are really two of the ways that you can like really get ahead. In uh, especially with cavalry, on with ground combat, uh, it's it's such an advantage, and it definitely used it to its advantage to expand the Mali Empire as much as he did. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing well known for is when they were trading, there was a lot of issues with the bandits, and they would trade with camels, and the bandits would on these trade routes, you know, hop out, steal and get the goods for themselves to make themselves rich. He really put an end to that. That allowed them to really sell their gold and sell all these resources they had that would make the kingdom really wealthy Mm -hmm. was uh, now facilitated by um, easier trading. Yeah, definitely kind of consolidated power in the region. Mm -hmm. And through that consolidation of power, was able to really capitalize on creating trade routes and putting their natural resources to, to good use and expanding their wealth, which was uh, really useful because they had immeasurable amounts of gold. <laughs> immeasurable <laughs> amounts of gold. And, of course, we will see that, and it's probably no surprise that the richest person in the world just had unimaginable amounts of gold. But so here we have... Mansa Musa comes into power because his uncle brother went out on this sea adventure to discover new lands. He's thrust into power, and he succeeds. And that brings us to our first segment, which who else has been thrust into the spotlight and made the most of their moment and succeeded? And I was thinking maybe we each just named three. Maybe we have some honorable mentions. What do you got for someone who seized the moment? So I'm going to take a, a, a sports analogy here. Tom Brady. Oh, I was going to say it. <laughs> took it right off the top. Yeah. Tom Brady was definitely – I have a couple sports folks in here. The Tom Brady was definitely someone who injury in the position above him. Drew Bledsoe goes down. Tom Brady takes the position, holds it for 20 years, and absolute success of the story. So he really seized the moment there. And uh, I said that one first because I figured you were going to say it as well. <laughs> Absolutely so. going to say it. We have – yeah, Monsa Musa, the wealthiest person of all time. Tom Brady, the best quarterback of all time. So I will name, this is fictional, but Simba, I think is a very good analogy to Monsa Musa. Wow. His father, Mufasa, ruler of the animal kingdom, gets trampled. And Simba needs to take down Scar and properly rule the animal kingdom so that they live happily ever after. So Simba, I thought, was... That's a really good one. I wrote down. Uh, <laughs> I wrote down Lyndon B. Johnson. Yep. And uh, Andrew Johnson, not really for success <laughs> necessarily, <laughs> but more because they were thrust into the position uh, yep. because of the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. So maybe not the most successful, but I'll then switch it up with another sports analogy, also fictional. Chris Comer. Don't know. Don't know who that is. Not surprised. I did not know who the person is. It is the running back in the movie Friday Night Lights oh. who replaced Booby Miles after yep. he broke his leg. So yeah, another great name led them to a state championship. 
Yeah, good point. So speaking of presidents, Theodore Roosevelt was McKinley got assassinated. So we've named three presidents where they got assassinated and their vice president had to step up to the plate. And I think Theodore Roosevelt, people speak pretty highly of him. Another example would be Augustus Caesar. Yep. Who was kind of named to the heir of Julius Caesar and really had not been involved in Julius Caesar's planning, involved in his politics. He was kind of off doing education in a different country when Julius Caesar died. And he uh, stepped up to the plate immediately and had a lot of success as a leader. Yep. Basically went to war immediately. So Absolutely. No one expected him to be given that position. He received it and started the Roman Empire. I have one more fictional one. Okay. Tom Kirkman from the show Designated Survivor. <laughs> I don't know. What is this? <laughs> it's, it's a show. It was on like NBC or something like that. Played by Kiefer Sutherland. Mm-hmm. Basically, they had this. So supposedly, the Senate, when the Senate, House of uh, Representatives, and like the president, like say the presidential state of the union, where everybody's kind of in the same area, mm-hmm. they have one person who's called the designated survivor, who's off in a like an underground lair, basically, just in case something happens. And in this TV show, in the first episode, a terrorist attack happens, and. Every, every other person in government, except for Kiefer Sutherland, Tom Kirkman is the character, dies. And then he becomes president of the United States. Interesting. Yeah, he's like a junior senator. And then uh, and then all of a sudden he becomes president of the United States. Yeah. And the show won multiple seasons. I haven't seen it. But <laughs> I, I imagine he did pretty well. Very interesting. Yeah, it makes you wonder, do they use body doubles? But before we go too far down this <laughs> rabbit hole, if there's a body double of Donald Trump out there. Uh, so back to the guy who did step up to the plate and expanded the kingdom, Mansa Musa. One of his defining events was his pilgrimage to Mecca. And Mecca is a city in modern-day Saudi Arabia where mm-hmm. as part of the Islamic faith that once in your lifetime you are supposed to go visit Mecca if you can afford to do so. And Mecca is where Muhammad was born. And you're supposed to go there and worship with people and in the Islamic faith, when they pray, it's supposed to be five times a day, I believe they always face in the direction of Mecca. So this is big pilgrimage, religious pilgrimage that Mansa Musa goes on. And in this sense, it's a a very big thing. He has a caravan of 60,000 people, soldiers, servants, slaves, guests. He makes a big thing of it. One interesting aspect is, in Mali society, you can tell someone's status by how big their pant legs are. Really? Yep. And so on this caravan, he had the biggest pant legs and he had... <laughs> like, Do you mean like the longest or widest? I'm thinking widest. <laughs> yeah. Just very wide pant legs. Mm. And of a rich fabric that only the emperor was allowed to wear. And on this caravan, which they walked at like three to four miles per hour, camels would carry the food and the water in tents, and they even brought entertainment. So an ancient cruise of sorts. And this wasn't a short journey that they were going on. It was something like 4,000 miles. Yeah, like at, yeah, at walking pace. <laughs> at walking pace. 
with, uh, and I read that uh, the camels, like each camel was carrying like a hundred pounds of gold. Yep. <laughs> or yep. something like that. Like at least a hundred pounds yeah. of gold. So I, I did some back of the napkin mathematics. Here we go. 80 camels, each carrying 23 to 136 kilograms of gold. In modern times, so you take this gold, how much is that gold worth now if you went and bought it on some gold exchange? The camels were carrying between $100 million to $700 million in gold. They also had servants who carried four, or slaves, 12,000 of them, who carried four pounds of gold bars. Again, the price today, if we had kept that gold until now, they were carrying $300 million. So he's basically a billion dollars. They are just carrying gold on this trip. <laughs> wow. And so as a result of this, when they get to Cairo, Egypt... He's very generous with the amount of gold he has. Mm -hmm. He's just giving them out like Oprah. You know, you get a gold. You get a gold. Yeah, gold bars for everyone. Gold dust flying in the air. Absolutely. And the famous story is he gave out so much gold in Cairo that there was a oversupply and it devalued the gold for 10, 20 years. Gold would not reach what it once and it, was valued and it in sent Cairo. Cairo into like a recession. Because yep. they, gold was so scarce, and then all of a sudden they had so much gold that it just completely flipped their economy on its head. And yep. Cairo was in a, in a recession for, yeah, like more than 10 years. Yeah. It took them more than 10 years to recover, which is uh, which is pretty, pretty crazy. I did read that they were speculating that um, some people speculate that it was kind of – he did it on purpose. Wow. Where it was trying – because Cairo was a huge trade hub. And so if you're trying to maybe shift the trade powers a little bit and you do something that kind of tips the scales in Cairo, you can then kind of make alternate trade routes. People speculate that that could have been uh, like a motive, but yeah. um, a lot of the prevailing uh, opinion is that he didn't realize what he was doing when he did it. Yeah. He was more just trying to be generous. That's an interesting theory. And he was a very thoughtful guy so maybe but it seems a little aggressive to suggest the way to take down your enemies give them a bunch of gold and money true. but but maybe it is and he definitely gave them a bunch of gold and during this pilgrimage people always asked him you know where are your gold mines how can i get it and he would make up jokes and he wouldn't really tell them but how he would set up gold trades to trade the gold they would meet in an undisclosed location they would drop the gold off his miners and they would ring a bell and then they would go away. The people they were trading with would come to the gold and then ring a bell and signal if it was enough, if they wanted more. And that's how the trade would happen so that they could trade the gold without disclosing where their mines were. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Kind of interesting. Another interesting thing that happened in Egypt that gives you a feel for the environment and the culture the sultan, 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 yeah, potato, potato, <laughs> from Egypt. He requested when people visit him to kiss the ground and kiss his hand. And it was like his big thing. Big thing. <laughs> Too big of a thing. It was like, <laughs> it's all good as long as you bow in front of me and kiss the ground at my feet. Yeah, yeah. Some real Game of Thrones bend the knee. Mansa Musa does not want to do this. Has some compromise where I think he'd lay down on the ground in front of him 
but didn't kiss it, didn't kiss his hand. Yeah, did not go the full distance. Yeah, but uh, and there was some, there was some definitely some uh, issues with how things were going down, mm-hmm. and then uh, the, they managed to work something out, some sort of middle ground where yeah. where he did kind of maybe bend over, <laughs> <laughs> paid some respects, but. And so then, after this, they go to Mecca, and during this pilgrimage, no longer wearing the, or when he's actually in Mecca, no longer wearing the large pants, because most people dress in the same white garb. For the time there, you're not supposed to get into arguments with anyone. You cannot indulge in any sexual activity. It's supposed to be a very religious experience. Kind of interesting. And so, he's having, you know a lot of religious talks, meeting all these religious figures. Yeah. And, and then they he- head back. Mm. But because of this trip, it put, literally put, Mansa Musa and the Mali Kingdom on the map, where in f- they added Mansa Musa to the world map. And these world maps, they would have figures of people. So where the kingdom was in Africa, they would draw a figure to represent that kingdom. Yep. And that, which is, which is pretty, that's how you know, it's just like a legendary journey mm-hmm. where around the world you are now known because you went on this just massive pilgrimage and it was just the stories of just gold raining from the skies because you were just giving out so much wealth and yeah. building mosques every they said that he built a mosque every Friday <laughs> and that they literally just went and just completely like gathered all the scholars and just, it was just this great, great uh, show of, of wealth and progressing your culture. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Put them on the map and the image they put on the map was of Mansa Musa with a gold crown, holding a gold nugget with a gold staff. Yep. So put them on the map. And during this time, during this pilgrimage, they were still expanding their kingdom, and they captured Gao and Timbuktu. Another interesting side note, when they captured Gao, on the way back, he visited Gao, and he took the Gao's king, he took his two sons and captured them, and in a somewhat kind way like of course they are slaves they don't have their freedoms but he takes them back and educates them just so he has this leverage over the Gao king to not rebel because he has his children in his power and eventually he would send them back but just you know an interesting again game of thrones manipulation political movement yeah i think that kind of behavior was pretty common to that a lot of the leaders wouldn't necessarily just i don't know kill the children of their enemies or things like that they would still kind of treat them with regard mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. educate them and just kind of make it almost like kind of the force forcibly marrying them into the family kind of thing yeah that's a good point still use them as a pawn but try to do it you know somewhat humanely so you mentioned timbuktu again killer name had not, had not really Mansa Musa hadn't really heard that name before but timbuktu mm-hmm. i think a lot of people will say that they've heard of that before if you um do you know, like, anywhere that you would use, like, Timbuktu? No, I know the name. I don't know why I know it. Is it just because it sounds great? Or so, say that? you're hitting a baseball, and you hit it really hard, and it goes really far, and you say, oh, I hit that one to Timbuktu. 
Okay. Have you have you heard the saying like that? Sounds or like, familiar. Or like, it's not like we're going to Timbuktu or something like that. Ooh. Where it's kind of just this. It's a North American and European saying where, mm. um, and maybe I'm not using it in the proper way, but I think a lot of people would say that they've heard the name of the city, and it just sounds like this foreign mystical place that may or may not exist. <laughs> uh, there was actually a study in England where they asked people if the, if Timbuktu was in like a real place or if it was a fake place and at least 30 percent said that they that it wasn't real i yeah i believe it it kind of it has that sound and feeling of atlantis i'm gonna start using that saying now it's, it's a good saying so yeah so i did i did kind of did like a, a deep dive into the into the history of timbuktu and basically since when monsa musa came back from his pogovich and he builds um he brings all of these uh, scholars and educated folk with him. And then in Timbuktu, they create kind of like this educational hub society. And they have multiple universities in Timbuktu, University of Sankor. Now there's modern day uh, University of Timbuktu. But they had three like large universities in the city back then. And the population kind of got high and it was very well known as like a progressive, highly educated society. And it was kind of, they had the largest library in, T- in Timbuktu after the library of Alexandria. Wow. And it was the largest in Africa since the library of Alexandria. So it was like a really, really prominent, he built a huge palace. Everything was just very flashy and like really just excellence was Timbuktu. So the city kind of got a reputation. And then in Europe, the it was just kind of this place really far away because it's in sub-Saharan Africa. And But Timbuktu was kind of this place that was like kind of off in the distance that nobody really had been there. But it was kind of, it kind of had a reputation as, as a, like a, a, a very uh, forward, advanced Muslim society, Muslim uh, civil or Muslim city down in down in Africa. Very interesting origin story that you have this distant, somewhat known of magical place, and that becomes a saying. It's neat. It's cool. Yeah, that's still used modern day, and people don't even know why it's used. But that's yeah. uh, that's kind of where the derivation comes from. Timbuktu is still a city in Mali, modern day. Really? Do not recommend visiting. Why not? <laughs> so um, there's a lot of terrorist attacks there. There's the Mali government and Al-Qaeda kind of have disputes there. Al-Qaeda has had terrorist attacks in and around the city of Timbuktu in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. There, I think there was even one in 2020. Oh, so, wow. and there's in the last 20 years, there's, there's a lot of people because it's kind of, it's a Muslim historical area. It's very, it's, globally regarded as kind of a, a, a historical city and mm-hmm. so tourists will go there and when tourists go there sometimes they get kidnapped mm-hmm. um, killed in hotels and things like that so a good place to read about but maybe not to visit in modern yeah, times absolutely and that reminds me of this pilgrimage to mecca it, it's impressive that you get all these different factions under the islamic faith they go to mecca and for that time they can't argue and they all get along it's it's to me because it's it's, it's in saudi arabia mecca and we know iran and saudi arabia they have their disputes and there are you know they attack the oil refineries this year Mm -hmm. but yet when they all go to mecca 
they're able to put this aside. Kind of interesting. Yeah, that's a good like follow up research as far as like Sunnis and Shiites. Yeah, how people kind of get along in Mecca. I don't know if it's like different days or things like that that they like make it so it's kind of more bearable for for folks to be like, kind of interspersed in yeah. the same area. I, I certainly don't know, but mark that one down for uh, future research for sure. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and yeah, so that's Timbuktu. I, I'm like. I know I'm not supposed to go there, but you make me want to go there. <laughs> That's what I tried to say. Yeah, it does. It does sound like a great place. Modern day, don't recommend going there. Yeah, personally, that's my personal <laughs> opinion. I'm not saying it's definitely an unsafe, but uh, I personally, based on what I've read, yeah. do not think it might yeah. be the most safe place to visit. Because I have seen images of structures they built during Monsa Musa time mm-hmm. that are still standing. I believe in Timbuktu. It would be neat to see those, but yeah, the palace is no longer standing. But mm-hmm. they, um, some of them, uh, at least one of the mosques that they built, and um, remnants of the university, or at least one of the universities, are still standing to this day. Yeah, yeah. And so for Mansa Musa, he had a 25 year reign, and he passed away. Somewhat up for debate, but around 1337. So he was in his late 50s, probably around 57. Mm-hmm. So. Maybe 25 years or so, his reign, definitely a very prolific leader in his time. Yep. And uh, definitely had a flair for the dramatic, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are, you, what are your big takeaways? Leader of the time, flair for the dramatic? I would say, yeah, his just expansive wealth was definitely a big t- takeaway. Mm-hmm. Gold. Um, gold. Valuable then, valuable now. Yeah, gold and its... Uh, and its unending value as a place setter for uh, determining wealth in the mm-hmm. world. Here's another interesting thing. When, when you look at the wealthiest person, I figured it has to come from someone within the government because, or some kingdom, because if you're Jeff Bezos, your money is still beholden almost to the government. If he ever, he has, you know, $65 billion in Amazon stock, basically. If he ever realizes that money, is getting taxed by the government. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Well, and if you're a king, you can you can control almost all the money in the country if you have depending if you have ultimate power. Yeah, that is true. And he definitely did have ultimate power. Yeah. Also a big takeaway for me was the the unintended consequences of what he mm-hmm. did and it kind of made me think more into the and this is this kind of goes away from the the Monsa Musa, but I started doing more research on um, just this, this idea that you try to do something good mm-hmm. and then it creates something bad. Kind of, so you're talking about Mansa Musa being super generous, giving out this gold, but then it puts Egypt into a recession. Yes. Kind of unintended. Exactly. exactly. The unintended consequence of uh, saying, I'm, yeah, I really just want to do this good thing, show my generosity, kind of rising tide lifts all boats kind of thing. And then yeah. it turns out that what you're doing is actually lowering the tide without without realizing it yeah so i did some research into into some other examples of this uh, and we can see kind of how how it relates to monsa musa so the cia actually has a name for this (laughs) (laughs) it's called blowback which is where you where i mean and yeah we we don't need to get into like united station united states and nation building specifically in the middle east and how (laughs) you take down uh one perceived negative person and then it 
raises other people in the, in their stead. So Al Qaeda to ISIS. <laughs> yeah, the explicit. I've other examples. The um, so prohibition and the war on drugs. A lot of people would say that in prohibition era, if you set forth a positive policy in your mind, which is to prohibit the sale of alcohol, um, the unintended consequence of doing that could be to make it so organized crime is more prevalent in the society because organized crime is more likely to be able to, if usage does not go down by the, the consumers, then organized crime is more likely to be able to stand up against the, against the, the law enforcement and things like that. Yeah. So that's, that's one example. There's yeah. actually like so many examples yeah. of this happening, which is crazy. So a lot of people do credit organized crime from coming from prohibition, right? Because now that all this money to be made for the illegal sell of booze and they develop these organizations, the mafia, it's a, it's a very good example. Yeah. And if you think on the war, of the war on drugs and like the, the drug cartels and, and things oh, like that yeah. and about how it kind of, it makes it so, so like the crime becomes more and more. Yeah, uh, difficult to it, defeat. It, it empowers the cartels because they have such a strong supply to sell to America now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's not as many suppliers. Um, in 2003, Barbara Streisand sued a website. I won't name the website, but <laughs> <laughs> Barbara Streisand sued a website because it posted a photo of her online, or not her, her house, actually. Mm -hmm. Posted a photo of her house. At the time that she had sued the company, it had been downloaded six times, the photo, but the media gravitated towards the story because of the lawsuit yeah. and due to the media's circulation about her lawsuit, it led to the photo being downloaded over 400,000 times. <laughs> and they call this now, they call it the Streisand effect, which is that, and this is why probably on a lot of times in modern day, saying nothing is probably the best answer for a lot of people when it comes to media. And that is as a result of the Streisand effect, which is kind of a um, public perception version of um, trying to trying to be proactive, but it actually exacerbates the <laughs> negative consequences of what you're trying to prevent. So, yeah, of all these terms, I think blowback's my favorite. Cobra effect, Streisand effect, the blowback. I think that's the term I will adopt. This this is unintended consequences. And this, yeah, this is and this is it's something that it, it, it goes back to. Uh, to Monsa's time where you you have this thought of something that you want to fix and you end up making, only making the problem worse. Yeah. I, I do recall one time there was this clip of President Bush and Bill Clinton talking and that's what they said was the most surprising thing of being president was the unintended consequences of your actions. Yeah, exactly. The butterfly effect that everything uh, yeah. that everything leads to leads to new things. Yeah. But yeah, at the time though, when Monsa Moose is handing out that gold, I'm sure they were all very happy. The, there is one. This is this is a deep dive. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been, there. There's a story from Canada that I un, uncovered oh. where I was researching this, and I feel like I this is completely unrelated. So <laughs> <laughs> feel free to skip forward a couple of minutes if you if you don't want to hear it. But I do think everybody does need to know about I'm, this. I'm here for the journey. So. It's called the Duplessis Orphans, and this is in the province of Quebec in Canada. And this is somewhere that it came, it's the Cobra effect. It's the, not the Streisand effect, but it's the same idea, the Monza effect, where you're 
you're trying to create positive policy and results in negative things happening. And I was reading this and I couldn't believe it. So I'm going to share it with you now. The federal government in Canada was trying to encourage creating housing for orphans and then housing for people in psychiatric care in the provincial governments. So what they did was they offered money per day for orphans and psychiatric patients that you had. The, what happened was they said, okay, we'll give you, it was about a dollar a day. It kind of fluctuates the numbers that I was looking at for every orphan that you have in your care that you're housing, we'll pay you a dollar a day. Mm-hmm. And for every psychiatric patient, they, it was like $2 and 75 cents a day. Yeah. The difference in those two sums of money. So, so how much was it again? It was like a dollar a day for the for the orphans, okay. and then it was like two dollars and seventy five cents a day okay. for the um, psychiatric patients. The difference in those two sums of money led in Quebec, the and this is I mean there's we don't have to get into it was like the church was um, really involved with the government. It was kind of it was non secular before the sixties, and this was in the forties and fifties. Mm-hmm. So in the forties and fifties. What the government, what the government and the church did, was they had all these orphans, and they said, "Well, we can make more money if we, mm-hmm. if they're psychiatric patients." So they would just, they would just classify orphans as psychiatric patients and admit them into, like, psychiatric hospitals, and treat oh. them as insane. Oh my goodness! And they said they said that there were at least a third. There were no, um, there was no even documentation of any mental health issues. They wow. just, it was ex- explicitly for profit, the, why they did it. That's, that's awful. These orphans, they already have it tough enough, probably, like mm-hmm. given a real raw deal in life. And then you have to put the complications of being treated as mentally ill. And I'm sure all the restrictions that go into that, that's awful. Yeah. And it was like over like 20,000 children wow. that were involved in this program and this is um and it it was like more than half of them <laughs> reported that they were um physically sexually or emotionally oh abused goodness. in the process and it was just this whole horrible thing and i had never heard of it until i was reading about these negative consequences it's pretty crazy they there's all sorts of litigation and we have canadian listeners they probably know more about this than i do but mm-hmm. just wanted to bring it up to you because it was a it was a pretty crazy thing to find out absolutely i've never heard that and it's a such a good example where you have these very magnanimous positive beneficial idea mm-hmm. but just when implemented it, it goes wrong that's unfortunate yeah so but mons musa yeah that one of my big takeaways is just like it really it creates like kind of such a wide range. You think about modern mm-hmm. times where policy kind of go, goes awry by yeah. accident. Yeah. And it dates all the way back to the 14th century. Also interesting thing, this was like around the same time that the Black Death happened in Europe. Really? Yeah, because I was kind of researching the 14th century. Mm-hmm. And when this happened, it was uh, like the Black Death happened in Europe, which is like a third of the people in Europe died. Yeah. Around the same time that yeah. uh, that this happened. Well, maybe in Mali, all the snakes were killing the rats, and they couldn't spread it. It's in so back to the unintended consequences <laughs> because it just keeps going. When um, when the plague happened, 
the uh, is that is the bubonic plague different than Black Death? I think they're different. There's okay. two different All ones. Right. The, there's the bubonic plague. Uh, I might not. Be, I I think it was different, but when the plague happened, they it's not mixed up. But the basically they thought it was the dogs and the cats that yeah, were spreading yeah. it, and then so they end up killing a bunch of dogs and cats, and it turns out it's the rats, mm-hmm. and the dogs and the cats were actually keeping the rat population down. Mm-hmm. So they did the reverse effect of what they were trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and so two big takeaways I wanted to point out from Monsa Musa. I was just thinking of now. One is pick your battles. He was a very good leader and got many people to be under his kingdom because all he required with them was tax and their troops. He didn't try to pick battles for religion, yada, yada, yada. Mm. I think it's a good leadership aspect of don't try to be too authoritarian, absolute power. Pick what really matters to you. Mm. That's a good thought. Yeah. And what was the other takeaway? Gold obviously matters. <laughs> there was one other one I, I, I really gold? wanted to say. Gold is good. Yeah, gold matters then, matters now. I think that's all. Yeah, th- uh, thank you for uh, going on this 4,000-mile journey with me. Yeah, yeah, take care, everyone.